Equity is brought to you by ExaCrunch, that prodigious TechCrunch paywall you keep running into. You can break through that paywall at a steep discount if you use the promo code equity. If you do, you'll get access to our best stuff and you'll make equity look really good internally at the same time. Enough of that, let's start the show. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm and I'm joined today by my absolute favorites. As always, I have Danny Crichton here. Danny, how are you? I just got my second shot. Very excited. Woo! I'm starting to feel like I took two shots of vodka this morning, so if I'm a little off, that's why. We also have Natasha Moscarenas here. Natasha, are you double vaxxed? I'm going to get my second shot in like three hours. So me and Danny are both going to be just like in weird states tomorrow. So hold right. down the site for us. Yeah, I'll see, you, I'll see you on Monday. I don't get my <laughs> second shot for a couple weeks. We staggered these out. That way the show wouldn't die was the idea. Obviously. All right, listen, uh, normally we would banter and tell some jokes and whatnot. But today is kind of a strange episode for us because for the first time, I think probably ever, we're going to talk about ourselves to kick things off because if you didn't see it, Last night, it was reported that the Verizon Media Group, which is owned by Verizon and which owns us, might be sold. So we're going to dig into that a little bit. It is an inescapable topic. And I'll just say up front, we are talking for ourselves. We have no inside information and we are just riffing. So don't take too much seriousness from it. After that, we are going to talk about the All Rays annual report. There's quite a lot of fascinating data about the diversity or lack thereof in the founder and venture communities. Then we're going to talk about FinTech Q1 VC, a little bit about Brex and why there is $80 trillion going into teen banking. Then Natasha is going to talk us through the EdTech movement that she's calling the Masterclass Effect. And then we're going to wrap with two cool kid VC funds, one a fund one, one a fund three. But guys, so the Wall Street Journal reports yesterday afternoon that apparently Verizon, who owns Verizon Media Group, who owns TechCrunch, might sell us in some sort of package deal to a private equity firm called Apollo. The rough history, in case you are behind on all of this, is that TC ended up in the AOL family back in the day. And then AOL was purchased by Verizon. Verizon also bought Yahoo, threw them together in a thing called Oath, which was universally reviled as a brand. Still persists in some of our backend tech, amazingly enough. And then that was rebranded in 2019 as Verizon Media Group after a multi-billion dollar write-down. And now the combined detritus of two of 90s biggest internet hits combined with TechCrunch and a couple of other pubs that are left that haven't been sold off for peanuts might go to private equity for four to five billion dollars. Danny, you weren't shocked. No, I wasn't shocked. I've been calling it for years. And, you know, there's a history here, right? We've spun out Tumblr. We spun out HuffPost. The dissolution of the Yahoo AOL Othian mix of brands was always in the making, I think, for years. I'm actually shocked it took this long, but with the ad market the way it is, it's probably the single best time ever to sell a digital online media-focused property possible. Yeah, I was telling Danny this yesterday, but I feel like we became the media story that we've been talking about on Equity. And I, yeah, I, I don't know how to feel just yet because it is super early, but I do now know what startups feel like when we scoop them or or you just don't know internally. I feel like everyone was actually really at TC was, you know, making jokes and just kind of, yeah, it seems expected. That's because if there was a meteor coming out of the sky directly at TechCrunch HQ and we were all inside of it, we would all make sarcastic jokes until we died. Yeah. That's just, that's the standard TechCrunch <laughs> response. That's the company culture I was missing. <laughs> and I'm just going to say this. Uh, f*** this. Like, can I just say how much I don't like it? You know what Apollo's going to do? They're going to look around and be like, oh, man, we can cut some fat here. And by fat, they mean reporting muscle. And then they're going to just fire like half of us. I'm not excited about it. I actually am fairly optimistic because we've already gone through two rounds of layoffs. There's already been the multi-billion dollar write down. Thousands of people have already been removed. There's no fat left. 
there's not even muscle or or bone left. And so to my mind, like the only reason to buy this is if you actually believe you can expand it, do new things with it, build on top of betting, commerce, a couple other growth targets. Otherwise, I mean, there isn't a cost-cutting play here because the cost-cutting is what you're already buying. See, guys, the way I deal with uncertainty is definitely just making jokes about it. So I think we should just try to manifest our ideal acquirer and run with that. Right now, I'm in between Andreessen Horowitz what? and Morning Brew. No, I'm kidding completely. Okay, thank <laughs> Maybe God. not on the ladder, though. <laughs> Let's put a positive spin on this because Natasha's here and she's always about finding the light at the end of the tunnel, which is usually a freight train coming straight <laughs> towards your face. My job. I just want to keep my job. <laughs> One thing we have seen this week from earnings from a lot of people from Google, from Microsoft, from a lot of folks is that the ad market is fantastic. And there's a lot of money in the ad space. It has rebounded dramatically in the last couple of quarters. And Danny, I presume that's part of the timing here is that we look better than we did a couple of months ago. Oh, absolutely. Look, digital ads across the board are doing better than they ever have in history. Fundamentally, at Verizon Media, digital ads is still the bulk of the business. So yeah. you, you are selling at a peak price when the revenues look best, when the efficiency looks best. Everyone knows that as well. I mean, the buyers aren't stupid about this either. I mean, they, they know how to discount this. But look, everything looks well-oiled. HuffPo just got sold off. It's a well-packaged little thing you can buy. Yeah, for just a mere 4 or $5 billion. Uh, just for the sake of the equity crew, if you do buy us, leave us alone. All right, uh, we're going to move <laughs> on now to uh, our world as opposed to ourselves. Natasha, there has been new data out from the AllRays group that we want to talk about today. And it's kind of what we thought was going to happen, which is that diversity in venture capital, instead of having a strong 2020, had a crap 2020. Can you talk us through just a couple of the numbers? Always, for those who don't know, is a nonprofit that works a lot on growing the success and just existence of female founders and investors in tech. And they do an annual report each year where they release benchmark data. So this year, 64% of VC firms still don't have a single female partner. Black and Latinx female founders receive only 0.64% of VC funding, which sadly is more than previous years, but still like devastatingly small. And the last one I'll include is that 27 women became check writers in 2020. Almost all were entirely white. Only one self-reported as African-American and there were zero Latinx new check writers. Alex, as you kind of like mentioned in the beginning, I think we've talked about this. We talked about this with Charles in the beginning of the pandemic about what happens during an up market. And it's not just, you know, Hoppin becoming the fastest growth story of all time. It's this. Yeah. So Charles Hudson, Precursor Ventures, I, I might even go as far as to say friend of the show. He's been on, I think, a couple of times by now. One of the more interesting pre-seed investors, I think it's fair to say. He's a person in a lot of companies that you've heard of now that he found before you'd heard of them. And one thing that he had told us, I think this was middle of last year, give or take, he said he had a couple of fears about what might happen during the pandemic, which is that, you know, as investors did get a bit more cautious for a moment there, they might kind of like turn their focus back to their old networks and so forth, which would be just less diverse than where they might have had their focus before. And then also that the pace at which the actual VC world itself diversifies would slow down as the VC world kind of shook during 2020. You know, that period of fear didn't last very long, but those predictions that, that Charles had seemed to have been borne out by this data. It's just I, a bummer frankly. I mean, sorry to start off the show with 10 minutes of sad, but like this data did make me kind of peeved. You know, Danny, I thought by now with all the talk, all of the efforts, there would be a bigger impact than what we've seen in this data set. I mean, as sad as it goes, go back five years. I mean, look at the boardrooms, look at the VC partnerships five, 10 years ago. I mean, I, there is progress. Yeah. The key is to remember it's incremental. It's a 10-year horizon asset class. You can't just magically sort of create things in six months, but are we steadily making improvement over and over and over again? 
I think the pandemic really brought a slowdown, but I'm hoping yeah. it speeds up again in 2021, 2022. And, you know, hopefully if you were to compare 2015 and before a lot of the movements to bring more diversity into boardrooms and, and VC firms and compare that to 2025, I'm hoping yeah. that you see a massive change in improvement. Totally. And the only thing that is haunting me on behalf of founders are the ones that are struggling to raise right now. And I wrote about this in like Startups Weekly, I think two weeks ago, about how a lot of people are feeling gaslit right now because they're like, we can't raise, but everyone says it's so easy to raise. And so I think that's the power of these reports and us talking about them. Incremental progress, but also, hey, we see you. I want to talk about that exact issue because we were pulling some data on the fintech venture capital world earlier this week. And one thing we found is that, you know, the, the number of $100 million and larger rounds in global fintech set an all-time record in Q1. And this is why we often talk about there's so much money in venture. You know, there's never been so much capital. But that doesn't mean that at your particular stage and your particular niche with your particular background, there is capital available. So, so on one hand, Hopping can raise every 74 minutes at a 2x valuation, but that doesn't mean that it really applies to everybody. And so, you know, the amount of money, it's just not equitable. It's what's the Danny, the phrase barbell distribution, right? When it's like all at one extreme or the other, I think that does come out to play. But talking about fintech, Natasha, you and I have been covering this off and on for ages now. Were you surprised by just how active the first quarter was? Because it was higher than I anticipated, frankly. I actually wasn't surprised based on how much you and Marianne consistently published. Like I was like, I needed to see <laughs> this expressed in numbers. So it's not just us. And the scary thing is to quote every VC ever when we write about historical data, this isn't even all of what happened because yeah. of the lags in reporting. And so I was just like, all right, thank you for writing this because it is just very relieving to see it expressed in actual numbers. All right, just a couple of numbers, and then we're going to jump over to Brex, which is one of the biggest rounds of the week and one of the most important news items on our agenda. But just to pick some stuff out for you, there were 614 global tracked fintech investments worth $22.8 billion. That is actually more than half of all the money that fintech raised globally last year in just the first quarter of this year. That's how fast things are going. So we are going to be on pace, essentially, to crush fintech records in the VC sense this year. And... So hot indeed. Ramp and Brex are at it again, Danny. There's apparently infinite money for corporate spend software and cards, but talk us through Brex a little bit. The theme of this show is going to be give credit cards to everyone because <laughs> that's why the economy is growing 6.4% annualized in Q1. But Brex, we found out this week, raised $425 million at a $7.4 billion valuation in a Series <laughs> D led by, of course, our favorite, guess which one? There's only one, Tire Global. It's the largest fundraiser to date for the company. You know, I... Look, there's like a bunch of folks in the corporate spend space. It's actually kind of incredible to me to see even in the downturn. I mean, you have to remember the corporate spend was massively reduced over the last year as folks didn't travel or have entertainment or meal expenses. But apparently you want more cost controls. You want the ability to buy seat licenses and all these sort of little features that Brex has added to make it easier to buy technology online, to do procurement. And the reality is, it's not just Brex, right? Divi, Ramp, and a bunch of others have also done super well in the last year. Alex, you talked to Henrique, the CEO of Brex. What is he on about, about the pandemic, about how they doubled their valuation in less than a year, if I'm correct? Well, one, I just, I hate to be nice about a founder on the show because it goes against our kind of general ethos of being brats, but like, I like Enrique. <laughs> He's cool. And I, I talked to him a little bit ago. My read on Brex is that they raised a bunch of money kind of like early pandemic last year. They didn't know what was going to happen in the market. And then the amazing thing that D Danny kind of touched on is that, you know, corporate spend didn't drop as much as people expected. Sure, you know, corporate travel 
zeroed out, but there was still an amazing movement towards more digital controls and so forth in the corporate spin space. So I think it just ended up being better than anyone expected. And this round to me, after talking to Enrique, looking through it and kind of thinking about it, sounds like a round they're getting done before corporate travel returns. Because if you can lock this in now, it might be cheaper if you're an investor than it might in a quarter or two if Brex crushes it. And a lot of companies really do get back on the airplanes and get back onto the travel scene. And then Ramp, just to throw it in here, did raise kind of a two-part venture round that was worth 115 and now they're worth 1.6 billion. But the thing that matters, guys, is that we're seeing Brex begin to charge for software. And for the longest time, corporate spin startups have really had one business model, which is get cards into everyone's hands, collect interchange revenues, and then offer software as a sweetener. And then over time, cards have become increasingly obvious and easy. And so the software's taken on more and more importance. And now Brex is going to offer a package of stuff for 49 bucks per person per seat, I think, and begin to uh, you know add to its transaction revenues with hardcore SaaS revenues, which, you know, frankly, is smart because the only thing worth more than SaaS revenues is like unobtainium. So like it's it's the right way to go. Danny, you're waving your arm in the air. No, I'm stretching out my, my oh, you're shot stretching. from the second oh. shot. Yes. I thought that was some sort of like signal that I fucked up. I was like, what's no, what, what, you know my signal? Mayday. Mayday. <laughs> so D- Danny is actually sore. And given how quiet he's been and how few times he's interrupted Natasha and I, that shot is kicking in. <laughs> Alex, I did want to I think what you said about the software is important because Brex had layoffs after they raised the last time. I think they laid off about 17% of its staff. Yeah. And it's then when they were saying that they're restructuring their strategy and they're going to figure out a better way to make money. And so I actually see them introducing premium, even though you said it's natural for startups to do that once they realize credit cards can no longer be their sole product. I feel like it's a lot more defensive than we might realize. They well, may I have think... not been as successful at making revenue from credit cards. And maybe this is a little bit more pandemic proof, but that was just my thoughts. Well, so Brex grew its transaction volume and revenue by 100% or a little bit more than that, March to March. So March of this year to March last year, Enrique said. So 100% growth is pretty freaking good, given that we would presume they'd be at some sort of material scale, given their long-term unicorn valuation. But you know, I don't think Brex was growing at multiple hundreds of percent per year that it was before. But the 17% layoffs, I mean, they closed their restaurant. My read of that kind of like layoff round at Brex now is them realizing that they had done too much weird shit too fast and needed to focus. And so like seeing them still grow 100% despite the pandemic and seeing them kind of work towards the software space, it, to me, makes a lot of sense. The question then becomes, you know, when does Ramp and when does Divi also begin to charge for the software or, or, or do they not? Do they just kind of like run with the free software as the way to get as many customers as they can? But the space is maturing. And to me, that smells like eventual consolidation, Danny. Or am I being too optimistic about wanting to write about those deals? No, I, I think this market is huge. Right. I actually think this market can support multiple new companies and entrants moving up and being massive companies. There's a huge amount here. But let's talk about another space, which I think is the exact same category, which is not corporate profligate spending, but teenage profligate spending, which apparently is actually worth <laughs> even more than corporate spending these days. But we had three, three count the major rounds. I think they were all within an hour of each other, which the chance that three teenage credit card companies all raise multi-hundred million dollar rounds in the same hour seems highly coordinated to me. Yeah. But Natasha, why don't we just do a top line run through of the three companies and we'll talk a little bit more. Totally. And Danny, to your point, I think that the agencies do this on purpose. So we end up talking about them as a trend. Like it's my longest running theory that isn't even too much of a hot take. Come on. They all <laughs> seem to email me at the same time Monday morning. It's like, oh, oh my God, there's a trend in your inbox. <laughs> okay. Anyways, three companies, three rounds. Two led by the same investor somehow. <laughs> okay, so first we have teen banking service Step, 
which you guys might recognize because it was endorsed by Charlie D'Amelio, the most famous TikTok star early on. It has raised a 100 million Series C and Steph Curry is one of those investors. The next is Greenlight. It raised 260 million in a Series D, doubled its valuation. It's now 2.3 billion. And Andreessen Horowitz led its Series D. I'm sure Tiger Global is not super happy about that. And then the last is Mobile Current Bank raised a 220 million Series D, tripled its valuation to 2.2 billion, and also had that led by Andreessen Horowitz. So it made two companies double its valuation on teen banking. How do we feel? So I want to be rude about this, but maybe we shouldn't be. One thing that I did notice reading through these rounds, just prepping for today, frankly, is that they've all reached kind of scale. So Step has 1.5 million users in just six months after launch, which to me seems pretty freaking good. I know that Greenlight, which is also kid-focused, has 3 million accounts set up for parents and children. So that seems pretty, pretty good. And then what Current is doing, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is that it started off as a teen-focused banking service, but it has since become more of a neobank. And I think this is how Andreessen is going to get away with funding both Current and Greenlight, because Greenlight is still aimed at children. Current's strategy is exactly what I think everyone is expecting the other two to do, right? Is that by getting into this relationship with teenagers and parents, you have now built a financial relationship. So you want to buy a car when you turn 16? Well, maybe you offer auto loans going up. Oh, we want to put a down payment in your first house when you're 19? Like, let's get into the mortgage business. And and like, you know, you see, if you look at the data economically, there's more and more cross-family financial arrangements. You know, what do they call it? The kids don't graduate anymore. They don't get into adulthood. Oh, uh, the, 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 the Peter Pan adult. syndrome. Yeah, the Peter Pan syndrome. There's a couple of these. The Char- Prince Charles challenge, if you will. Wow. And um, wow. that's what it's called in sociology. But nonetheless, I think the key here is, you know, there are these more complicated financial relationships. They're not always clean. And these startups are taking advantage of that and saying, look, we can build a much better product that encompasses the reality of people's finances as opposed to this one-off products that you see from the traditional legacy in banks like Wells Fargo, JP Morgan Chase and others. It's giving me serious ed tech vibes because it's doing the same thing where like it needs to sell to parents because they have the pockets. It needs to be fun enough to get the kids to trust it and then it'll scale over time. But it'll take like a decade for it to scale. And so I see obviously natural overlaps in financial education, but just in general, the way that they're going to have to actually win over this market in such an emotional topic. Money is probably the, even more emotional than education. Oh, gosh. Yeah, it's up there. A lot of work. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, so so let's think about Chime, though, for a second. Chime is probably the best known American neobank, I think I want to say. And it's gotten to be I mean, freaking huge based on what I can tell. And it's worth I didn't look this up before, but I believe it's now worth more than 10 billion as of its last funding round. And so we've seen, you know, at least one company in this space that's more broad scale to that dollar amount. Does that kind of cap where these teen banking ones can go, given that they're targeting a smaller niche, a smaller slice of the market? I think this is one of the big challenges in fintech, right? If you look at Wells Fargo right now, it's worth $188 billion. It's one of the largest banks in the world. And these companies, I mean, we're not talking $188 billion, so there's a lot of headroom for all these. But nonetheless, like there is a max cap. Right. And it's not like folks suddenly are able to buy more mortgages than they were before. Maybe with a stimulus check from the government, you can do that. But the reality is, it's like it's actually a very zero sum game, at least locally within a certain geographical market. And so from my point of view, there's a lot of overlap here where I'm always concerned. It's like, well, they have a financial relationship with these folks, Chime, Acorn, SoFi, you know, go on and on and on. But you can't have a financial relationship with everyone. It's not as valuable if you will have 10 relationships. So I just wonder how much we're overvaluing each individual relationship and whether there's a little bit of smoke and mirrors where it's like, oh, actually, they're not going to buy all their financial products through one bank in the first place. Every time I think that I'm wrong. 
So I don't I don't disagree, but like I keep falling prey to that to that logic. Like I thought like last year OKR startups were like, you know, there's too many for the market. Wrong. <laughs> I thought there was no way Robinhood and Coinbase could keep growing because I thought certainly everyone who wants to buy a fucking share of stock or like a piece of Bitcoin has, has done it wrong. And like, so I, I think we underestimate how many humans there are with smartphones out there, Danny. And I, I think that maybe there's enough space in this particular market for one or two players, probably not three to five, but like maybe, I mean, at least people that have data that we're not currently looking at are putting nine figure checks into these companies in anticipation of that. So we'll see. I do think there's something American about being individualistic about money versus internationally. It might be easier to do the bundling effect that we're all kind of thinking makes a lot of sense, but isn't happening. Like I just see it not working in America as easily as it might work in like India, for example, where it's really normal to share finances with anyone in your family. Really? Yeah. I feel there's a lot of cultural restrictions here too. Yeah. Money is oddly taboo in America. Even like, I mean, my siblings and I have tried to make an an effort to be more open about money amongst each other just because we're pretty tight knit, frankly, but like that's not common. And probably to our own detriment, but I think also like multi-generational households are less common in America. There's been this you know, make your own nuclear unit and self-suffice or you're a failure. But I wonder if that's changing. I did want to spend like a minute debating on if we think this is a type of technology that should really even be being bet on in such a billion dollar way. There's a lot of arguments of like the slippery slope. When we were doing our planning meeting, we were talking with our producers, one of which is the wonderful Grace. And she was kind of explaining while there's the easy argument that existing bank systems are inaccessible, And there's a lot of barrier to entry, a.k.a. these startups can kind of help people enter the banking world. Is the end result inevitably making younger people trapped in debt just younger and younger? And so there's a lot to talk about on like the ethical implications and if people kind of fall down into that route. I'm curious where both of you stand. It's interesting because I I do feel like there's a good allergy in the market against exploiting kids. I think we lose that once people turn 18 and and then it's kind of caveat emptor. But like, I think that if these applications do create a way for people to get into debt earlier, that's not going to be popular. So my, my presumption would be that they have a you know an incentive to not do that. The question then to me shifts to education, because if we all admit there's some modest risk to this, and you know, it's probably not great to get your kids too hyped up on capitalism too early, but like sugar, you know, there could be an educational arm to this in which people could be taught some core financial things that are also just not that well known in America. I mean, financial literacy, I don't know about other countries, so I can't speak more broadly, but like, at least in this country, my country, it's garbage. Yeah. People don't know a damn thing. And this is how they end up upside down in mortgages. They end up in tons of credit card debt by accident. They overborrow for education because they just don't know. And so these apps, if they're going to start with people younger, I think owe it to those users to invest in educational services to help people take better care of themselves. Otherwise, what's the point? Well, talking about education and giving classes to folks, one of the big pieces that Natasha wrote this week was about the, I guess you would call it the master class effect, which is the rise of all of these different startups that are starting to get into the master classian view of creating really high quality production values in the learning space. Natasha, what are some of these companies and why are people so focused on them? Two companies. One is Gary Kasparov, who was the world chess champion and actually taught a master class in chess, is launching his own platform that's going to be a master class just about chess. So just a really niche version of the best of the best in the chess world, teaching people, doing classes, and Gary himself will be making appearances. What's, what's, it, what's it called? It's called Kasparov Chess. I know. That, that just makes Kasparov sense. Kasparov Chess. It, 
Right. It's like they didn't one come word, up with a name at all. One word, not two. I mean, <laughs> I, I think instead of master class, you call it class master, like chess master. Oh. Yes, Danny. Danny, go. this is actually like could be your second job, but we'll See, it's like $60,000 of branding consulting fees right there in 10 seconds. This is the best dollar Done. per minute I could have ever yeah, get. Make the, make the check out to <laughs> equitypod at techcrunch.com. Thanks. <laughs> hey, when I buy Verizon Media next week, you're all going to be shocked. If you buy it, I'm definitely getting fired. Oh so like, <laughs> it's been real. This is my last show. I'm going to go start uh, a Pico ghost Substack. you know? All right, uh, Tosh, back to you. The other company, please. The other company is called Outlier, which is actually not an outlier because it started by one of Masterclass's co-founders. That's crazy. It sells intro-level college courses online with that same Masterclass documentary style vibe. But they are a bit different in which students are doing the classes in cohorts. There's actual tests and grades. So unlike Masterclass, it's a little bit more involved. But I do put them under this idea of the Masterclass effect because they are all betting that high quality documentary style videos is enough to make students engage and comprehend information at a more accessible cost in some way. I have a question about this. One of the startups that you mentioned in the piece was was Toucan, right? Yes. So Toucan ended up raising, like after my article went out, Toucan is actually kind of similar to Duolingo originally. They basically place words in the language you want to learn throughout the web. So if you're on TechCrunch.com and you have Toucan installed as a browser extension, school might show up as Escuela if you're trying to learn Spanish. Oh. And it's kind of trying to do like immersive education. I still consider it aspirational education, if I'm being honest, because it's like a more invisible way to learn. Okay. The reason why I brought that company up was the founder said, and I forget her name, but she said like- Taylor Neiman. Thank you. Taylor said that, you know, we also think that education has to have a strong entertainment component to it. And uh, one of the other people was talking about how they're competing for people's time. And I thought that was an interesting kind of two points because I was, I don't know, pessimistic about entertainment as education to some degree. But then I realized that, you know, in the old days, we didn't have electricity. So after it got dark, you just went to bed and you could only read books because there was no Netflix. And now there's just so much to do all the time that you probably have to have a little bit more of a hook to get people to do stuff. And so eh, I, I kind of vibe with that. But Danny, last point on this, are you more bullish on the niche players like Chess Kasparov or are you more bullish on the master classes of the world? I'm a huge bullish on the niche players. I think this is across media, by the way. It's not just in the Substackian world or in the podcast world. It applies to education as well. Like if you want to learn literature, I don't want to go to masterclass. I want to go to like whatever the literature platform is that teaches literature the best. Like I want- Words with friends. Words with- (laughs) Sorry, I just couldn't. Kasparov, like if I want to learn chess, you know, and it's not just that the the content will be equivalent. Like I, I believe masterclass can produce high quality chess content. What I, I don't think they're going to be able to do is adapt the platform, the mechanisms, the delivery of that material in a unique way to actually teach each of these subjects in their own way. You know, Harvard CS, Georgia Tech as well, have invented really unique programs around computer science training. And that's built around the concept of how you people best learn to code, which is different than the way you best learn to write an essay or to read a book or to learn to play chess. Like every single one of these has its own pedagogy. One platform can't rule them all. All right, Danny, that's $5 into the no uh, societal word word choice bucket for pedagogy. Um, we're going to wrap up today. <laughs> I, I, I ruined that by forgetting the phrase I wanted to use to mock you. So I ended that's up just because turning you're not playing words with friends, Alex, and you're I losing vocabulary at an efficient rate. If you were curious about what it sounds like to trip over your own shoelaces on a podcast, that is what it sounds like. <laughs> we are going to cap off, though, with some, some Twitter news, effectively, Natasha. So there are two new funds from folks that I bet 80% of people listening to the show right now have seen on Twitter, and we are calling them the cool kids of VC. 
And Natasha, I want you to run us through the first one, please. And then we're going to get Danny's response, if you don't mind. Yes. And I'll just start. The two people that we're talking about are Turner Novak and Ryan Hoover. Actually, and Vedika Jane. And my fourth nomination to manifest the Cool Kid VC Club is Freya Lobo, previous PM at Twitter. She needs to start her own fund just because it's expected. So I am going to start by telling you guys about Turner's fund. It's called Banana Capital. It is a little less than $10 million. And it's going to invest in what he describes as internet first founders. For anyone who knows Turner, he's a big, big meme guy and just a really funny known personality in tech Twitter. But he's also more than that. He was an investor at previous firms. He does a lot of long form pieces on big companies on his Substack, which I actually really like. And so it's been really interesting to see him cultivate a community by putting content online while he's in Ann Arbor and is now kind of raising a fund to invest in those people. So Danny, he's targeting ownership between 0.2 and 3%. Now that is uh, not what we usually hear. So I want your VC perspective on targeting low ownership. There's reality, right? Which is you can't get high ownership anymore, right? That's just the reality. But he's actively targeting low ownership. So I read this and I was like, you know, when's the last time I heard about something called a banana having a bad financial regime? And I was like, oh, banana republics. You know, like at the end of the day, you have to have a good economic business model and taking 0.2% for a serious chunk of cash. Like, yes, it's a seed check. If you can get in, okay, you know, focus on MOIC or whatever. The reality is, is like, this is such a strange strategy to me. Like we actively don't try to buy anything. Like you don't want a better strategy? How about buying zero? And then you'll get into every deal under the sun. I have to give him props because he is saying the truth that no other VC wants to admit. Like every VC I talk to in early stage, not every, but a lot of them recently have been talking about this small ownership problem. And I feel like just because he said it is the reason you're bullying him, Danny, even though it's the truth. <laughs> also, look, if you're a new fund and you only have $9.99 million, which in the VC world is like lunch, right? Let's be clear. In the world of Tiger, that's literally a joke. You probably don't have as much leverage. But if you're willing to just take small ownership mistakes, maybe you can get into more deals. Maybe you can boost that MOIC or that IRR, pick a VC acronym, because you're just willing <laughs> to not do what some of the people are demanding, which is 10%, 15%. You know, Maybe that gives you more access, Danny. It absolutely gives you access. Look, this is what every rolling fund is doing. We'll see in 10 years what the return profile will look like. I mean, the new acronym to me that everyone focuses on the returns is, is called WTF, LOL. And we'll see if that turns out in 10 years. But <laughs> oh, uh, before we hit the weekend, we should talk about Ryan Hoover's fund, Weekend Fund, which, but Fund 3, there's a little bit of an interesting kind of closing model to the fund. So it's, it's raised the bulk of its capital, but it's doing a unique program. What tells a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, this is happening more and more. Ryan Hoover and his other partner, Vedika Chain, are creating a community raise. So they've reserved up to $1 million for operators and founders outside of its network to participate and increase kind of LP diversity and representation. So love that. I'm not sure what platform they're using for it, but we are seeing it just happen a lot more. I am curious if this is LP in the traditional sense or if it's going towards just kind of like operating fees. I, I think it is not the operating fees thing, because if you go to their website and you click on it, you have to kind of essentially apply to them directly. Okay. So I don't think it's like a Republic equity crowdfunding into the firm itself as opposed to the capital pool. But a couple of uh, return bits of data here that actually do matter uh, as well. Fund one, 36.6% IRR. Fund two, 117.9% IRR. Both are good, right, Danny? Yes. I mean, fund two is probably, what, a year old? So that means things have been marked up. That's a good sign. <laughs> no, I mean, look, I mean, I think they've been in a lot of deals and they're a loan ownership as far as I know fund. I mean, they they have 
done small deals and a lot of good things. And again, like I, I think at the seed stage, it makes sense. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I don't want to be too negative about this, but, but at the same time, it's like, you know, if your model is fundamentally about getting 25, 50 K allocations in the cap table, it's a tough world out there. Yeah. It's getting more and more competitive every year. Well, their fund is um, 20 million. So double what Turner has, but it is fun to see people that I enjoy in a casual, hilarious manner, enjoy themselves. And we're going to close off with just a little bit from Turner about why he named his fund banana capital. Cause I think this is hysterical. Bananas are one of the most consumed fruits and have gone through many bioengineering processes. Plus there are no other fruit funds out there. I mean, like true, there's Sequoia, there's like Oak tree, rock Creek, whatever, but there's no one's like raspberry investing incorporated. So like, I, I think banana capital is fine. And there's always money in the banana stand. And with that, goodbye. Bye.